The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will bring it to pass. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we open God's word this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for our study of God's word through the use of 1 John 1 9, if necessary. The uh, exercise of the privacy of our priesthood, silently confessing any sins that we need to to the Lord in order to recover fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can be prepared to study His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather around the study of your word and to fellowship here. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that as we continue to study the uniqueness of our spiritual life, the struggle we have with the sin nature, that you would help us to see how these things apply to our own lives, and that in the objective scrutiny of your word, we would be honest in evaluating our own lives, and we would be encouraged to move forward and advance in the spiritual life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We will resume our study in verse 17. Galatians chapter 5, resuming our study in verse 17. We're in the middle of a study that is something that... uh, sort of runs counter to a lot of things in our culture. Very few people really want to spend much time studying about sin and sin nature. In fact, we live in a society where people don't really think they're sinners. And if you were here on Wednesday night, we began a study of postmodernism, and we'll probably wrap that up this, this week. But this is just a term to describe the changes that are taking place in our culture. And one of the facets of that is that people are rejecting any notion of absolute truth. That's the phrase you hear so often bandied about is absolutes. Now, I was listening to an interview the other day related to postmodernism. And uh, and the man being interviewed was uh, William Lane Craig, who's one of the foremost Christian uh, philosophers in our day. I think he teaches out at Talbot Seminary. And he made the brilliant observation, I thought, that absolute truth is redundant. Truth is 
absolute. So today we're rejecting any concept of truth, and what's true for one person is not true for another, so of course that impacts our understanding of sin, because what may be sin to you is not sin to somebody else, so let's just not talk about sin at all, and so we just sink further into a morass of moral relativism. And so it's just the opposite when we come to God's Word and we see the emphasis on God's Word that we are all sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And even among many Christians, there is a failure to understand the dynamics of the sin nature. We want to think, and many churches and many groups do think, that somehow at the moment of salvation, the sin nature is somehow lessened in its efficacy that it's not as powerful, not as strong, not as evil as it was prior to salvation. And yet that is not the thrust of what God's Word says. For example, in this particular passage, we see that these mandates and prohibitions, all of these descriptions that we have in verses 19, 20, and 21, are all directed to believers. Just because you are a believer, that is no guarantee that you cannot sink into the most extreme, the most depraved forms of sin and carnality known to man. And just because somebody is living a life like that does not mean that they are not a believer. Some of the worst people in human history have been believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are giving free reign to the sin nature and know nothing about the life with the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit. Now, when we came to this passage about almost two months ago. We began in verse 16, and we have spent much of the last seven or eight lessons analyzing the key terms in verse 16, because these are terms and concepts that are not understood very clearly by many people today. And because they, while Paul talks about them very briefly in verse 16, they bring with them many concepts and verses from throughout the Scripture. So we took some time to analyze the terms, and we saw that the first mandate is, I say, walk by means of the Spirit. This is a present active imperative, which indicates that this is a major priority in the life of every believer, that our spiritual life, which is the emphasis of walking, walking describes that moment-by-moment characteristic of the believer's life, that we are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, that the life of the believer in the church age is unique from any other age in history because we have three ministries specifically that are unique to this age, three ministries of God the Holy Spirit, the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, which identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's non-experiential. It takes place at the instant of salvation, and it puts us in union with Jesus Christ and brings with it 39 irrevocable absolutes for the spiritual life and one revocable one. The one that is revocable is the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit when we sin. So we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which brings with us these 39 spiritual realities that God does for us at the moment of salvation. Then we also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is unique in this church age, that God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in every single believer, 
from the moment of salvation on. And then the third is the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is related to the believer's advancement in the spiritual life. You cannot advance in the spiritual life if you are not being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. There's got to be a distinction between the life of morality, the life of simply good deeds that can be generated by anybody, believer or unbeliever, and the spiritual life of the church age, which is uniquely the product of God the Holy Spirit. That's what we're seeing in Galatians 5. And this is why this is such a crucial passage for us to understand, because it is here that we see the dynamics of our unique spiritual life. So we are commanded to walk by means of the Spirit. And then we are told you will not, and it's an absolute negation in the Greek, and it means you will under no condition be able to fulfill the desire of the flesh. So we see that there are uh, two, only two realities here, two options available. We're either going to be walking in the power of the sin nature, or we will be walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. There is no in-between, and there is no walking with one foot on one side and one foot on the other. The Apostle makes it clear that you're either walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, or you're going to be carrying out the lusts of the sin nature. You know, we look at the sin nature, and we saw that the word epithemia, which is translated lust, is related to the internal motivation, the core motivation of the sin nature, and we have various lust patterns. That are, Everybody has them. Not everybody has the same lust patterns. We're prone to different ones. There's approbation lust. That's the desire for approval, for recognition, to get patted on the back, to make sure that everybody notices what you do. There's power lust. That's control of other people. Power lust, approbation lust, materialism lust, money lust, chemical lust. All kinds of different lust patterns which drive people. And we go in one of two different trends, two opposing trends. One, it's towards asceticism and legalism, which is the emphasis on morality, following an external law code. And this ends up in moral degeneracy. That's exemplified in the Scriptures by the Pharisees. On the other hand, if you have lust patterns and your lust trend towards uh, sexual sins and licentiousness, then that is antinomianism, the rejection of any absolutes, licentiousness and lasciviousness. And if you spend your time in that direction, then you end up in immoral degeneracy. The sin nature has two opposite poles, the area of strength and the area of weakness. The area of weakness is that area where you are prone to yield to temptation. You haven't sinned by being tempted. You sin only when you uh, accept the temptation and yield to that temptation. The temptation comes from the sin nature, but it is your volition and my volition that determines whether we sin. That's why the issue is always volition. We must have personal responsibility. And in our study of sin, we've seen that there are four categories of sin. There are sins of cognizance, where you know you're sinning, you want to do it, you know it's a sin, and you do it. There are sins of ignorance, you don't know that what you're doing is a sin but it still violates the righteousness of God and you want to do it and you do it, so you're responsible for it even though you did not know it was a sin. You have sins of, of commission where you are actively engaged in 
performing a particular sin or sins of omission where you're just failing to do something that you should be doing. So there are four categories of sin and all flow from the sin nature. Now we have also seen that at the moment of birth, everybody has a human body. We are born physically alive and spiritually dead. We have a soul and resident in the human body is a sin nature. And this sin nature exercises its influence and control over the soul so that in terms of all, every category of the soul, the self-consciousness, the mentality, the emotion, volition, and conscience, that every facet of the soul is influenced by the sin nature so that all of our thoughts are skewed by the sin nature, all of our decisions, all of our emotions. There's only one option, and whether we're operating on human good or personal sin, we can only live in the power of the sin nature. That's it. There's no other option. So no matter who you are, from day one up until the time that you're saved and you have a capacity because of the human spirit and the indwelling Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine to go in a different direction, the only choices available to you are bad choices. Now, some may be less bad than others, and there may be relativity in relationship to the consequences of those choices, but you're either going to be producing human good or you're going to be producing sin. And since it all flows from the sin nature, the result we saw last week when we looked at the pathology of the sin nature in James chapter 1 is that when uh, temptation conceives, it gives birth to sin, and the result of sin is always death. It is self-destructive eventually. With that, And that applies in terms of solving problems. Whenever we face difficulty and adversity in life, no matter what that difficulty or adversity may be, we can find lots of techniques under the category of human good that seem to solve the problem. Well, we can make life work for us, and we can have a level of stability, a level of happiness, a level of control in the midst of those horrible circumstances, but the end result is that is always going to be death. The end result of any human good system, any sinful system of handling problems, it's always going to be self-destructive. And that's why the whole issue in the spiritual life is renewing the mind, Romans 12:2, the renovation of our thinking so that we get into our heart, which is the innermost core of the thinking of our soul. We diagram it like this with two concentric circles. The innermost circle is the heart. That is the core of our thinking, the innermost part. And up until the time that we are saved, everything in that heart is human viewpoint thinking. And then we begin to take in doctrine. So on one side we have divine viewpoint. On the other side we have human viewpoint. And the issue becomes our volition. Which are you going to choose to operate on to solve problems? Now this is, only, and, and in the Christian life, the only way that you're enabled to live on divine viewpoint, to even learn divine viewpoint, is under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is why it is so imperative that we walk by means of the Spirit 
And then we're told we will not fulfill or carry out the desire or the lust of the flesh. Then we come to verse 17. Verse 17 says, For the flesh, that is the sin nature, sets its desire against the Spirit, and this is the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, the Greek begins here with the particle gar, G-A-R. Now, gar is almost always causal. That means it should be translated because. So, you have a mandate, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh because. So, we're going to be given a reason here, because... The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There is warfare. These are in opposition to one another. So once again, you have the sin nature here and you have the Holy Spirit here and there is complete antagonism between the two which is represented in the Greek by the preposition kata, K-A-T-A. Kata plus the genitive indicates opposition, standing against something. So the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. They strive against one another. The sin nature on the one hand versus the Holy Spirit on the other hand. This is the war that goes on inside every single believer. The sin nature is driving you in one direction. And the problem with that is that from the moment you were born at point X until the moment you're saved... And let's say, just for a round figure, let's say you're saved at 15. Now, some of you were saved much earlier, some of you were saved later. But for most of us, even if we're saved early, we don't really get serious about doctrine and start learning a lot of doctrine and begin applying it till sometime later in life. And we realize how important doctrine is and the spiritual life becomes a priority. And then we begin to advance. So from age 1 to age 15... And even beyond, what happens is you develop innumerable habits from the sin nature. These are sinful, or either sin, personal sin habit patterns, or they are human good habit patterns. And you have learned them so well that you don't even think about them anymore. In fact, you're executing those sinful responses or those human good responses to adversity in life before you even think about it. They've become so ingrained in your thinking, in your personality, in your life, that it's only through a conscious effort. That's why you have this mandate addressed to your volition, walk by means of the Spirit. It's only through a conscious effort that, one, you learn doctrine, and two, you apply doctrine under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And then we have to go through that very difficult process of putting it into practice and retooling from the ground up everything in our mentality. But what happens is that as soon as we hit some adversity, the first thing that pops into our mind, the first thing that pops out of our mouth, is going to be something that's generated by the sin nature. That's why it's such a difficult struggle. So this is the warfare, the sin nature against uh, 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 the lust of the sin nature against the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit against the sin nature. And then we have another explanation with the same particle gar. For these 
are in opposition to one another. And here we have the present middle indicative of the verb antikamai in the Greek. A-N-T-I-K-E-I-M-A-I. Antikamai. Now, the present tense indicates continual action here. These are continually in opposition to one another. The middle voice is a dynamic middle for emphasis, and the indicative indicates the reality of this warfare. Antikamai means to oppose, to be against, to be antithetical to. So what we see by the use of this particular verb is that these are two opposites. There's no way that they are going to be brought together in any form of compromise. And that again, and I keep belaboring this point because I want you to understand how serious this is. It's either one or the other. You're either operating under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit or you're operating under the sin nature. It's one or the other. It's not both. You can't be partially spiritual and partially carnal. And this is one of the verses in Scripture that makes that very clear. These are in opposition to one another. And then we have a Hena clause in the Greek. Hena can indicate purpose or result, and here we have a result clause, and that is that there will be a level of frustration because of this struggle, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, we're going to see an illustration of this when we turn over to Romans 7 in relationship to uh, understanding another another passage in just a minute, but there Paul recognizes that you continually, when you're not living on the power of the Holy Spirit, you're continually wanting to live a certain way. As a believer, you know there's a certain standard expected of you. You've been taught doctrine. You know what that should be, and you desire to please God, but there's continuous failure in the spiritual life. And that is because of this struggle and because of the sin nature. Now, the issue is always volition. Verse 18, But if you are led by means of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now we have to remind ourselves of the entire context of Galatians. Galatia was a province in what we now call Turkey. At that time it was Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire. And the Galatians had been evangelized by the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. But it, after, he was spent several weeks with them, taught them doctrine. There were hundreds who became believers, and they began to grow. And then Paul left and moved on to other areas. And right after Paul left, a group of, of believers came in, or a group of false teachers came in by, that are, we call Judaizers, because they were coming into the church and saying, well, it's great what Paul taught, that you need to trust Christ as your Savior, and Jesus did come, and He died on the cross for our sins, and that's great as far as it goes. But it really doesn't go far enough because now you have to be in line with everything that God taught in the Old Testament, including the Mosaic Law. So what you have to do is you have to start applying the Mosaic Law in every area of your life, and you have to become identified with Abraham just as the Jews are through circumcision, and then you have to make the Mosaic Law 
the driving force and the dynamic in your life because that's how you grow spiritually. And what they were doing is what happens in many situations today is that people confuse morality with spirituality. And there's a vast difference. Morality is for every member of the human race, believer and unbeliever alike. If you look around, you can see there's a number of cult groups that are extremely moral and legalistic, and you run into people in those groups, and they live very moral and upright lives. There are many wonderful unbelievers that live lives based on human virtue and integrity. Now, it's because of our antinomian culture today, it may be harder and harder to find some unbelievers like that, but nevertheless, there are unbelievers like that. But that has nothing to do with spirituality. And this is the point that Paul is making in this entire epistle, is don't confuse morality with spirituality, because morality can be a product of human good and therefore a product of the sin nature. So he comes back to this concept of the law by reminding them that if you're led by the Spirit, and it's a first-class condition if, and I'm assuming you are being led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Legalistic obedience and legalistic concepts of the spiritual life are completely antithetical to a life based upon the Holy Spirit. This takes us back to the first part of this chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. We through the Spirit, for we through the Spirit are waiting for the hope of righteousness. This is the essence of the spiritual life. This is in contrast to verse 4 when Paul says, rebukes them and says, You have been cut off from Christ. Why have they been cut off from Christ? Not that they've lost salvation, but because of their own volition, they have cut themselves off from the resources of Jesus Christ. You see, at the moment of salvation, when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are identified through the baptism of the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ. And because of our position in Christ, we, get, we are given 39 irrevocable absolutes and one revocable absolute. And these are the spiritual realities that form the basis for our spiritual life. These are all of our spiritual assets. And what happens is that in terms of the bottom circle, our walk with the Lord in time, when we get involved in carnality, when we get involved in legalism, when the sin nature starts controlling the soul, then we're out here in, in darkness under sin nature control, and we have virtually cut ourselves off from experiencing the power of Jesus Christ in our life. That's what that means. You have been cut off from Christ because of your volition to live on the basis of legalism and your own efforts. You've cut off from the benefits of Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by means of law, you have fallen from grace. And that's what that term, fallen from grace, means, is out here you're living on the basis of legalism instead of in fellowship with the, with the Lord on the basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit, living in grace. Now, 5.18. Let's look at this first clause. It's a contrast. It's a soft contrast. It's, it's really for emphasis. It's not the strong contrastive Allah, but is the, it is the softer uh, conjunction de, which I think here should be translated now because we're not tra- contrasting 
the leading of the Spirit in verse 18 with what has just been said. It is a reminder. Paul is saying, now remember this. If, and it's a first class condition, if, and we're assuming this is true, that you are being led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. See, when you're in fellowship here in the bottom circle, you are going to be led by the Spirit. Now, we will look at what that means in just a minute, but for now we'll just say, in fellowship you are being led by the Spirit. When you are in carnality and operating on legalism, then the influential factor in the soul is the flesh, the sin nature. So if you are being led by by the Holy Spirit, then you are not under the Mosaic Law. These are mutually exclusive concepts. Spirituality by morality is going to destroy any, any hope of advancing in the spiritual life. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Well, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Point number one. Every single believer at the moment of salvation is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and therefore is going to be led under the guidance ministry of God the Holy Spirit. This is stated in Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, how do you become a son of God? John 1.12, As many as received Him, to them gave He the power to be called the sons of God. So, at the moment of salvation, one of those 39 realities that God does for you is called adoption. And we are adopted into the family of God, and we are given the technical title of sons of God. Now, this term, <clears throat> this isn't some sexist term. This is a term that is based upon certain realities of Roman law. And so that as an adult son, you are granted all the privileges and all of the responsibilities related to an heir. So we are sons of God and we become heirs of God. And it is related to all that we are in Jesus Christ. So, Romans 8.14 stipulates that if you are a child of God and you are a son of God, part of the indwelling ministry of God the Holy Spirit is that you will be led. And in that context of Romans 8.14, this is what we'll call the general ministry of, of leading. And this is done through, if you're out of fellowship, through the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And if you are in fellowship, through His active leading, which is done on the basis of Bible doctrine. This is not some sort of mystical, intuitive uh, leading where you have to contemplate your navel and figure out just what God the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. Now, this is typical today. And as we're going to see in our study of postmodernism, one of the things that has happened in our the sh- cultural shifts that have occurred in the last 20 or 30 years is that instead of people thinking more objectively, which was typical of modernism, remember modernism is based on the scientific method. Modernism was based on rationalism. So in modernism, people tended to think more objectively. There was, even if... They weren't believers. They did think that there was some concept 
of truth. But in postmodernism, there's just all kinds of truth. Everybody has their own truth, and so everything becomes subjective. And the only way to know what is true for you is through some sort of intuitive insight. So now we have decision-making based upon hot flashes. Whatever seems to hit you today and impress you, then that's what you're going to do. So it's uh, when you come to the Bible from this kind of mindset, then you're going to reinterpret phrases like the leading of the Holy Spirit in terms of this inner, mystical, liver-quiver, hot-flash, internal, contemplative sort of approach, which has nothing to do with the Word of God, which is always based on clear, objective standards as expressed through the propositional statements of Scripture. So the first point, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and therefore is being led. Point number two, in this passage, being led by the Spirit is more than simple divine guidance. This is a summary of all that is involved in the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the believer to spiritual maturity. The emphasis in verse 18 is that it's not simply the the concept of general leading, that is expressed in Romans 8, but the active aspect of that leading where you are following. If somebody is leading you, then they are on point. And they're out there blazing that trail and pointing you in the direction you should go. And so if they're on point and you're following them, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be walking. So here we have the, I want to pull these things together. This is point number three. Pull together the the imagery of this particular uh, chapter. We start off by walking by means of the Spirit, which is a mandate addressed to our volition and emphasizes the continuous step-by-step nature of that progress. But what are we doing? We're following something. So we're led by the Spirit. He's directing us. And this relates to the teaching of His Word, the mandates and the prohibitions in doctrine. The path is clearly laid out by the overt objective mandates and prohibitions in Scripture. We walk, but our walking is by following Him. And then this is further emphasized down in verse 25, where we read, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by means of the Spirit, and the Greek shifts words. In verse 16, it is peripateo, which emphasizes that moment-by-moment, step-by-step walking. And in verse 25, we have the Greek word stoikeo. Looks like this in the Greek, S-T-O-I-C-H-E-O. And stoikeo emphasizes following in someone's footsteps. So you see how These three images, walking, leading, and following in the footsteps, all blend together. But when you see that imagery of following in the footsteps, you know that there must be some sort of clear, objective path to follow. And that's laid out by the mandates of God's Word. So point number three relates walking by means of the Spirit, leading of the Spirit, and following in the footsteps of the Spirit. Point number four, in terms of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, he is convicting the believer of sin. He is teaching the believer doctrine. 
He is helping the believer to understand doctrine and correlate one doctrine with another doctrine. He is reminding the believer of the doctrine that is stored in his soul. He is assuring the believer of his salvation. He is providing divine guidance. He is interceding for the believer in prayer. He is transforming our character into the character of Jesus Christ. And He is gifting us for Christian service. All of that is involved in the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And all of that is under the category of being led by the Spirit when we are operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit. That leads us to point five. The teaching of the Holy Spirit. John 16:12. Jesus said to His disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you not, cannot bear them now. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that in the whole realm of doctrine, there are certain doctrines down at this end of the spectrum which we will call very basic or elementary doctrines. Now, remember... The Old Testament, nobody was filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. So how did they learn doctrine? Well, they didn't learn a whole lot of doctrine. You read the Old Testament, there are a lot of things there in shadow form. But if you look at the explicits that are in the New Testament and how they're developed in the New Testament, it's much more advanced. In the Old Testament, it's very basic. It's very visual. There are a lot of visual aids used to communicate doctrine. Why? There is no Holy Spirit there. There's no Holy Spirit there to help them understand. So apparently, on the basis of what Jesus is saying in John 16 and some things in 1 Corinthians 2, that there are some elementary levels of doctrine that can be understood because you have the human spirit, the regenerate believer has the human spirit, that the unbeliever can understand apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But these are very basic. So Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. So here we see that the Holy Spirit is specifically referred to as the Spirit of truth. He is called the Spirit of truth because He is the one who will be communicating truth, which is Bible doctrine. Furthermore, he says he will guide us into all the truth. Now, he doesn't say he will guide you into whether or not to buy a house down in Ledyard or buy a house over in Mystic. doesn't say he will lead you into whether or not to go to UConn or go to University of Texas. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. It doesn't say He will guide you into whether or not to marry this person or that person. It says He will guide you into all truth, which is Bible doctrine. So once again, we have the emphasis on truth. These are absolute concepts revealed in the Word of God. So the leading of the Holy Spirit is related to teaching doctrine. Point number six. The Holy Spirit, therefore, leads, provides direction, and guides the believer 
through objective information. So guidance is therefore not guidance by intuitive insights, hot flashes, but guidance by means of objective revelation. So we have to understand what God has said. And God has communicated His Word to us to be understood. It is lucid. It's to be clear. He didn't communicate so we could sit around and and spend most of our time saying, well, it could mean this, or it could mean that. I really don't understand. There's so many positions today. Well, let's just sing some songs and and feel good about God and and then go home and and talk about how good it was to be at church today because we all feel uplifted. And which is where most people are. They've, they've rejected the concepts that there are absolutes or that it's clear or that you can even understand the Bible. And so they just end up emphasizing emotional experience. But the Scriptures teach that the God the Holy Spirit instructs us and teaches us and therefore that it's all understandable and divine guidance therefore is through clear objective revelation. Which leads us to point seven, that divine guidance therefore comes from the mandates and prohibitions of the Word of God. Divine guidance comes from the mandates and prohibitions of the Word of God. If, and you are, we will assume that you are in fellowship and being led by the Holy Spirit, you are not under law. The spiritual life does not operate by means of legalism. Now in verses 19 through 21, Paul is going to give us an evidence of how we can tell if we are in sin nature control versus Holy Spirit control. It's going to be manifest. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. And we find the Greek word, the Greek adjective here, phaneros. P-H-A-N-E-R-O. S. And it means something to, it relates to something that is perceptible, something that is clear, something obvious, manifest, or conspicuous. So what Paul is saying is that if you're operating on the sin nature, you're not going to have to sit back and guess as to whether the sin nature is in control of the Holy Spirit. There are going to be certain things that are evident, which he calls the works of the flesh. Erga. From ergos, the nominative, E-R-G-O-S, which means works. And there's an emphasis on the external consequences here. This is how the sin nature control will ultimately manifest itself. It doesn't matter if you're engaged in a lot of moral activity under the category of human good. Sooner or later, it will be manifest in your life in this way. There will be no doubt whatsoever what is going on. So hold your place here and let's see how Paul explains this in a couple of other passages. Turn to Romans chapter 6 and then we'll look at some things in Romans 7. So we'll stay in Romans for a few minutes. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. A reminder of the basic principle. For sin shall not be master over you, that is, at, at the point of salvation, 
we are freed from the penalty of sin, and at that instant of justification, we enter into the spiritual life. And at, the, at salvation, phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin, but the whole process of the spiritual life is to be saved from the power of the sin nature because the reality is that the sin nature's mastery over us is broken at the cross. At the moment of salvation, that's broken through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. And even though every single believer still has that sin nature, and there's no sin that you cannot commit even as a believer... The issue now is how to live apart from having that sin nature control the life. For sin nature shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, the rest of that chapter and into chapter 7 relates Paul's own personal experience as a believer trying to understand what it means to live on the basis of grace and not on the basis of law. I want you to turn over now to verse 14 of chapter 7. Here Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, and there he's talking about the law has spiritual value. It does not make you spiritual. That would run counter to what he just said in chapter 6. He says, But I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Verse 15. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Now, what should that remind you of? What did we just read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17? That there's a warfare between the flesh and the spirit, so that you may not do the things that you please. And here Paul is saying that this was true in his experience, that he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to please God. But he couldn't do it. There was a, a law in his members. There is this sin nature that is driving him in a particular direction. That which I am doing, i.e. sin, I do not understand. I don't understand why I keep sinning. I keep struggling with these same sin. But if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now no longer I am the one doing it. That is, I as a regenerate believer but it is sin which indwells me. This continuous problem we have as believers with the sin nature. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. And so we see this in these verses from verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. Paul emphasizing this internal struggle going on in his mind for control. And it's not until, notice, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned at all in chapter 7, and it's not until verse 2 of chapter 8 that he turns to the solution, which is the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there he is emphasizing the fact that man on his own, following the law, can't accomplish anything, will always struggle, will always lose, and will always be a failure. So even when he is... Get this point. Even when he is living on the basis of legal obedience, which is what he's trying to do in Romans 7, he's trying to live the spiritual life on the basis of the law, on the basis of morality, what does he say is the result? 
sin. Now get the point. I want to see glazing over a little bit. When you're living on the power of the sin nature, what Paul is saying is, I'm I'm not living on the power of the of the of the Holy Spirit. I'm living on the power of legalism and trying to live a good life. But what is the result? The result of human good is what in Romans seven? It is sin. It is the sin nature. So this is always going to be the consequence. Living a moral life is always going to manifest itself in certain works. Now, Paul grouped these works that are listed in verses 19 through 21 in four different groups. The first three relate to sexual sin. The second group consists of religious sin, sorcery, idolatry and sorcery. Then we have a list of about Eight, from enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, all have to do with the consequences on personal relationships. And then the last two have to do with uh, drunkenness. And I think there's also an overtone there in relation to religious practice of the day, but we'll look at that when we get there. So there's four groups. Let's look at the first group, which represents clear, overt sexual sin. Now, the Greek word here, translated immorality, is the Greek porneia. This is where we get our word pornography. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Now, originally in classical Greek, this referred to prostitution. But by the time of the New Testament, the word had taken on a much broader context. Now, technically speaking, porneia relates to fornication as opposed to adultery. Now, adultery is any sexual relationship between two people, one of whom, at least one of whom, is married to somebody else. Notice, we're not going to get into a lot of legalistic wrangling on the definition here. I said any sexual relationship. This can be very, from a very simple level to a much more uh, intimate level. Fornication, on the other hand, is sexual involvement between two people who are not married. It also came to have a much broader sense. Its root meaning is to indicate unfaithfulness. It's also used to indicate spiritual apostasy and unfaithfulness to God. It primarily referred to many of the uh, practices, the fornication, the prostitution that took place in the uh, in the fertility religions of the of the uh, phallic cult that was practiced throughout Greece at the time. All of the ancient world, whether you were in Syria, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greece, or Rome, all practiced some form of fertility religions. And in those fertility religions, because they were an agricultural society. The key issue in any agricultural society is going to be fertility. And so in order to impress God, the gods, with your sincerity so that they would bring fertility to your fields and so that you would have an abundance of crops, in order to impress them with your sincerity so that they would in turn bless you with fertility, then the way you did that was you went down to the local temple and you engaged in ritual uh, fornication with the temple prostitutes. 
And that was to somehow impress the gods with how sincere you were so that they could then bless you and prosper you. So a lot of this had to do with religious practice. Now, in the Greek culture of the day, and remember the culture of, of Galatia is a Greek culture. The Greeks had overrun Asia Minor several centuries before and they spoke Koine Greek and they had, had adopted basically a Greek culture. And in that culture, there was no moral stricture against sexual intimacy outside of marriage. In fact, it was not only expected, but it was assumed. Every husband had a slave. They also had concubines. And there was no uh, priority on restricting sex within marriage. Furthermore, in Greek culture, one of the highest form of love, Plato said the highest form of love is homosexual love. In the Greek army, they were encouraged to have homosexual relationships because they they operated on the philosophy that in combat, if you're having a homosexual relationship with your your partner in the trenches, then you're going to fight a little more diligently to protect them when you get into combat. And so when you get back into the reading uh, Homer and you read the Odyssey and the Iliad when they're outside the uh, outside of Troy, then a number of those Greek warriors are all engaged and with their buddies in some form of homosexual activity. So this is a culture that is caught up in all kinds of degenerate, uh, immoral, sexual practices. And all of this is included in these first three words. And there are several places in the, in the passage, uh, in several passages in the Scriptures, where these three words are used together to, to completely cover all areas of sexual immorality. So when the Bible is, is uh, being written, this is not going to a culture that is already predisposed against sexual immorality. The normal accepted practice in the culture was all kinds of I mean, freewheeling sex. This is not too different from what's happening in our culture. Just to give you some interesting figures of how things have changed over the last 30 years. In 1969, now remember... Flower Child Movement and Free Love started about 1963-1964. So by 1969, we're well into the sexual revolution. By, in 1969, 68% of Americans believed that sex outside of marriage was wrong. By 1987, during a conservative period in American history when we had a, a Republican in the White House and the threat of AIDS in society, you would think that things would change, but things had gone from 69% to 46%. So by 1987, and almost a 20-year period, 46% believed sex outside of marriage was wrong. But by 1992, just five years later, it was down to 33%, probably down to about 25% today. Now, the interesting thing is that among Christians, there doesn't seem to be any discernible difference. We have to ask the question, does the Word of God really make a difference in people's lives? No, it doesn't. They don't believe it. They don't apply it. Among Christians, there's no discernible difference. In a recent survey, 56% of single conservative fundamentalist Christians, 56% engaged in sex outside of marriage, which compared to 57% for liberals. So there's no difference between liberal Christians and conservative Christians. According to the same study, 66% of Roman Catholics 
were engaged in sex outside of marriage. And all of this shows that there is a breakdown in the whole concept of truth and absolutes and moral values. Now remember, it is the Holy Spirit who teaches truth. Truth is viewed as absolute. Now, 66% of Americans believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. 66% no absolute truth. Among the younger generation, those who are Gen Xers, Generation Xers, that number is 72%. No such thing as absolute truth, which is a total, totally irrational concept. What you're saying is that there is no absolute truth. Well, is that absolute? Yes, it is. So it's an inherent contradiction. But see, this is part of the, the trend in postmodernism is things don't have to logically adhere because logic is the product of white male Western European thought, and that's evil. So nothing has to be logically consistent. So we're going to believe whatever we want to believe because it makes us feel better. 72% of Gen Xers do not believe there is anything like absolute truth. Well, how does this play among evangelical Christians? 53% of evangelical Christians believe that there are no absolutes. Now, this is just, what I want you to go away from this is to show how absolutely irrational our societies become. 53% of evangelical Christians believe there are no absolutes while at the same time, 88% of evangelicals believe that the Bible is the written Word of God and is totally accurate in all that it teaches. It's the Word of God, but there's no absolute. At the same time, 70% of Americans claim that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, 70% of Americans believe the Bible is the absolute Word of God, and 66% of them believe there's no such thing as absolute. See, things were a little different in the ancient world than they are now. Christians were going against the flow. They were Everything that's communicated here was just as opposed to the culture of that day as it is to the culture of our own day. So the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the sin nature, are going to be obvious when you look at them. They are immorality, porneia. The second is impurity. This is the word Aka Tharsia. A K A T H A R S I A. This is like U N in English. It's the negative. It's called an alpha privative. So this word Kathasia means clean, to be clean. The negative means unclean. That's how it's translated, but it meant much more than that. It had to do with almost every degenerate form of sexual sin around. Pederasty bestiality, necrophilia, whatever it might be, if it's not covered by porneia, it's going to be covered by akathosia. And just to make sure you don't think that somehow it's okay to be engaged in sex outside of marriage, Paul's going to wrap it up with the last word, which is aselgeia. A-S-E-L-G-E-I-A which covers all the bases. It refers to licentious debauchery in all of its forms. So by using these three words, Paul is going to emphasize the fact that God invented sex. Sex was designed for pleasure. 
secondly, for procreation, but the context is to be restricted to marriage. Sex outside of marriage in any form, whether it's heterosexuality, homosexuality, pederasty, or anything else, is wrong. Period. Now, some of it is wrong whether it's involved in marriage or not. But sex outside of marriage is wrong and is to be completely rejected and can only be done so under the power of God the Holy Spirit in applying doctrine. Well, that just covers the first three in the list of sins. We'll have to come back next time to see how I, why idol, what idolatry is and to see why sorcery is much more than simple sorcery. In fact, that's not really a very good translation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word. We thank You for its clarity that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, it exposes our own trends of our sin nature. It makes us uncomfortable, but it also forces us to realize how tremendous Your grace is, that You paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, that no matter how horrible it may be, no matter how degenerate it may be, You paid the penalty on the cross, and that we can have salvation simply by faith alone in Christ alone. It is not a matter of morality or bringing, pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps, but it is simply a matter of expressing faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without hope, without eternal life, without a sense of, of salvation, that they would realize that the Scriptures are very clear that all they have to do is put their faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ, and they will have eternal life. Jesus paid it all. We do nothing. Now, Father, we thank You for what we have learned today, and we pray that You would help us to uh, utilize this doctrine in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.